Um, looking today, we're looking at um, we're looking at Acts chapter 10, and I've titled it, as you can see on your handout, "A New Era." Um, remember, in as we look at the context, remember a couple of things from. You've heard me say it, and I will say it again, probably after this week. But um, that idea from the beginning of Acts chapter 1, that Jesus says um, to his disciples before he ascends into heaven, do you remember in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you will be my disciples, go back into Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And do you remember that there are two different kinds of concentric circles that it's, uh, that are being alluded to in that statement, and even that we see happening throughout the book of Acts, that the gospel is going to go forth into the world, and it's going to break down barriers geographically so that people all beyond the no, beyond um, Jerusalem, um, Jerusalem being the epicenter of God's saving work, it's going to go out beyond to people in the whole world, and that's what you see by the end of Acts. When Paul ends up in Rome, the idea is here now, the apostle to the, Genti- to the Gentiles is in Rome. Everyone in the whole world is going to hear the gospel. Good news. Everyone in the whole world will hear the, the gospel. But so remember, geographically, we're looking at Jerusalem here. <coughs> and then um, we saw Samaria in chapter 8. When, um, remember what happened in chapter 8? Does anybody remember what happened in chapter 8? You can flip back and look. Remember that we had, there was persecution um, following Stephen's martyrdom, and many of the Christians <coughs> left Jerusalem. And as they left Jerusalem, you saw the gospel going out into other areas. We saw oh, the, the gospel. Ethiopian. Yes, that's right, the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was traveling back home. Along the through Gaza, right? And he was probably Jewish, but remember, um, he was not as close to the Lord as some other Jewish men. I'll explain that in a minute. But first of all, um, just geographically, we see the gospel going out. Like, I love the idea. I I say it again and again and again, but of an epicenter. Just going out like ripples in a pond. The world would never be the same after what Jesus has done. And so you see the gospel going out to all these different places, including Samaria. And in the last chapter, we saw there was, um, we saw where Peter was. Peter himself was out of Jerusalem. He was um, in Joppa and Lydda. And um, today we're going to see is set in Samaria. Or not Samaria, excuse me. Caesarea. I know. (laughs) Can you tell I'm excited to use them? (laughs) Um, So Caesarea, oh, we're going to see, we're going to see Peter there. So all that to say, geographically, the gospel <coughs> is going out. Then there's another way in which the gospel is going out. And that's not geographically. That's in terms of boundaries and barriers um, in relationship with God. So what what sin brings separation from God? And we see in the Old Testament that there is protection 
for sinners from the presence of a holy God. Sinners are invited into the presence of a holy God. This is my version of the tabernacle. It's kind of an inside will put. Um, so in the temple, at the very heart of the temple, and think of it, the heart being very center, very heart of the temple, we had the Ark of the Covenant, right? The place <coughs> where God met with um, broken human beings um, and when he met with Moses and gave him the law. And he showed the way for a broken people, an unholy people, to be in relationship with a holy God, which is a sign of God's favor that he hadn't just abandoned humanity following the fall. And even though all creation, include especially human beings, have entered into sin, God is going to pursue them. We see this as the story of the Old Testament, all throughout the big picture of the Old Testament, God pursuing humanity through his specific choice of a people, Israel, and his specific revelation to them of the law, what it means to be holy. And then what it means to be holy is encapsulated there within this whole system for um, atoning for the guilt of sin so that, and the whole purpose for this atonement is so that people can be in relationship, in the presence of a holy God and receive joy and gladness in worshiping him. And so this, um, at the very heart of the temple is the tabernacle, or excuse me, is the Ark of the Covenant. And who could go into this holiest of holy places? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Only the high priest on one day of the year, right? On the Day of Atonement. Um, So it was really fenced off. You could think of it as a fence. And then going out Mm -hmm. from there, there were different other concentric circles of holiness, is what I would call them. Um, that you could get close to the presence of the Lord manifested in um, the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, but some people couldn't get as close. And so what you would see is that um, the <coughs> great high priest would be on the inside, that's one man, and then the priests could get further in, and then um, healthy Jewish men mm-hmm. were the next circle. And as you went out from there, you had disease. Sorry, ladies, women, non Jews, which meant first Samaritans were considered non Jews or close enough to being non Jews, and Gentiles at the furthest reaches. So we see that the gospel is going to go forth and um, by the forgiveness and mercy of God, these barriers are broken down. And people are invited into relationship with God, into worshiping him through the path paved by Jesus Christ by his death. Okay, questions about that before we... I've done this probably a million times. Sorry, I'll probably do it a million times more. I just love drawing it. And seeing it, 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 seeing it on the whiteboard makes it real for me. Okay, so um, that God's purposes include, um, involve including the Gentiles in his promises. And we saw that in Genesis. Genesis 12, verse 3 in particular, talks about um, the Lord's saying, that's the Lord's promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him and through his offspring. So the Lord is making good on his promises. That's another thing about Holy Scripture. You see that 
Um, the Old Testament is very often about the Lord saying, I'm going to do this. You know, and do you have people in your life who say they're going to do something and then don't do it? Yeah. I'm, I've been, I can think of things I've said I'm going to do and I'm not going to do it or I don't do it, or I fail to follow through. Well, the Lord is the only person (laughs) who's perfect in this and who is able to follow through exactly on what he says. The Lord's word is trustworthy. If he said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And um, so he says he's going to include the Gentiles, and we see this promise fulfilled in the book of Acts. Okay, so um, Caesarea is... Now we're going to go back to geography, just really briefly a little word on Caesarea. Where is it? It's outside of Jerusalem was actually the Roman capital for um, the province, the Roman province that included Palestine, included Judea. So we would think of Jerusalem as being the capital. Well, the Jerusalem was the spiritual capital, especially for the Jewish people. But for the Romans, they, it made a lot of, wouldn't it make a lot of sense to have a port city as your capital if you're an empire and your center is way far away? So Caesarea Maritima is what it was called in the Roman Empire, and um, that's where um, the, the emperor's closest governor was. That's where the big, big honcho, Roman honcho, was centered, was at Caesarea. So we're going to meet someone who lives at Caesarea. He's a centurion, a centurion was the captain of a hundred men and um, he's a part of the Italian cohort which involves 600 men. So he's one, he's, a, he's a, an important man within um, the Roman army and he is um, not just an important man, he's probably a wealthy man as well. Um, so let's start to read chapter 10 from the book of Acts. We're going to read all of chapter 10, it's long, verses 1 through 48. So I'll get us started. I'll read a few verses, and let's each take a turn reading. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. Three times that the thing was taken up at once to happen. 
Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's, Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. So verse 23, about the middle. Right. Um, some of these words I don't know, so you have to hear them. Oh, no, just go, go boldly. <laughs> <laughs> the next day Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived at... Yeah, that's Caesarea. 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 Yeah. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and other friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking uh, about him, Peter went outside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for the Jews to associate with the Gentiles or visit them. But God has shown me that I shall not call man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without rising any objections. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in the house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest of the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to learn, to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened through, throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day, and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify 
that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the, heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as, ma as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and, magnif and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to, set, to stay a few days. Hmm. Any thoughts or observations? It's an amazing story. It is an amazing story. I mean, it's world-changing. That changes everything. It cha tell us about that. How does that change everything? Well, I mean, the, the fact that the, he is saying that the old laws of, of um, clean and unclean mm -hmm. that apply to food and people mm -hmm. don't apply anymore. Right. You see, and you see that in, um, that takes up a lot of scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, Leviticus is mm -hmm. full of that. And Jesus is there, or through Jesus, through this vision to Peter, Peter has seen and realizes that does no that no longer applies. Mm -hmm. That is no longer a prerequisite for receiving God's salvation. And that's what the big thing is. It's not that it's not that um, Gentile and Jew on their own, or Gentile and Jew and um, Indian and <laughs> Chinese and any other ethnicity. It's not that we are on our own justified just as we are. It's not just a, they're there, you're good just as you are. You don't need anything to make you right before God. No, what it's saying is all are welcome to come and receive God's salvation that he has made known to us in Jesus Christ. There are no prerequisites. Um, I remember in college there were so many classes I wanted to take, but needed to have some prerequisites and I just didn't have enough electives to be able to get all the prerequisites to take the upper level class but I didn't want to bother with the prerequisites. <laughs> there are no prerequisites. That's what is happening here. The prerequisites are completely out. And we're going to see that later on in Acts um, when more and more Gentiles come to faith then there's this question of well sh okay so ceremonially clean, unclean but shouldn't they be circumcised at least as a sign of their being included in the promises of God? And the council, you know, says no. They don't have, to, there's no prerequisite to receiving grace. All you have to do is say yes. Um, so no matter who you are or where you're from. And it's huge, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So this question, well, first of all, I think the Lord, you see, it's a drastic thing couple different observations to make. It, there's a lot of repetition in these 48 verses. Do you see that? There's a lot of telling the story, telling the story, hearing the story, and then Peter telling the story to Cornelius, and Cor you know, Cornelius telling his story to Peter. And what we're going to see in the next chapter is that Peter's going to go back to Jerusalem, and they're going to say, what are you doing? And Peter's going to tell them the story again. So we're going to get to hear it again. And Luke does that as a way of saying, this is really important. When he repeats things, um, when he retells narration, it can 
for us, we're like, yeah, we, we heard that. We got that. You're telling us again. Okay, great. But it's because it's important, and that's why he's going to repeat it. In so, a way, it's, yeah. it, it's what enables them to really go to the ends of the earth. Right. I mean, exactly. more about that. Well, I mean, just the whole idea of before, you didn't go to this person or that area or this mm-hmm. whatever. So now that everybody is fleeing, yeah. 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 there are no barriers. That's right. You can there are no, the ends of the earth. There are no barriers to preaching the gospel. Right. Exactly. And there's... Um, Let's talk some more about, <clears throat> well, first of all, just a little note about Cornelius. He's a God-fearer is the language used, and it might be a technical term, because that's a term used of Gentiles who, were <clears throat> who had come to believe in Yahweh, were sold out on a monotheistic faith, had no longer worshipped multiple gods, but said, I'm going to worship just the Jewish, Jewish God. And um, they were enacting Jewish morality as well. Um, praying and um, even celebrating some of the feasts and they would worship in the synagogues. They weren't allowed into the temple, quite into the very heart of the temple, of course, but they could you know, worship in the court of the Gentiles. And so there was a technical term for those kinds of men. They were usually men because if it was a woman, you could easily become a Jew. All you had to do was be baptized. Affirm, your, affirm faith and be baptized, kind of like for us. But if you were a man, you had to be circumcised, even as an adult. And that was understandably a barrier for a lot of men to becoming Jewish. So um, it says of Cornelius that he is he feared God, a devout man who feared God. And his fear of the Lord, remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the Old Testament, that's one of the... Um, that's the language used in the book of Proverbs to describe what it means to worship Yahweh. What does it look like to worship Yahweh? What it means to fear God, to fear the Lord? And this fear of the Lord is manifested in two different <coughs> actions on his part. He gave generously to the people, so giving um, to those in need uh, generously, and then also praying continually to God. So, And then w- we see him at prayer, while he's at prayer, the angel comes and says, the Lord has remembered you. Your prayers have caused the Lord to take notice. Isn't that amazing? The Lord has remembered you. Yeah, Leslie. I have a question Please. About that, and <coughs> maybe just completely off the topic, mm-hmm. or may not be significant at all. But in here, it, when he when he sees the angel coming and everything, and he it says he's afraid. All throughout, when I read about an angel coming, he says. The angel says, don't be afraid. And here he doesn't say that. Well, um, I see it. I see it in verse 4. Um, he, steers an, he sees an angel. The angel of the Lord comes into him and says to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? So the an- we don't hear the angel saying, don't be afraid. Uh-huh. The angel says that even to Mary. You know, Gabriel says that to Mary. The angel doesn't say, don't be afraid. Um, maybe, maybe the angels. That's right. You should be afraid. <laughs> um, what What do you think that's about? Why do you think that happens all throughout Scripture? You're right. It's a really good observation. All throughout Scripture, whenever you see an angel appear to someone, they're terrified. <laughs> well, from what I, I understand, you know, angels are. Yeah. Really. Tell Tell us about angels. angels. I know. I know. And and and, and, and you know, it'd be like. 
like maybe a building coming up and talking to you or something. I know, I know. Because they're so right. huge and, yeah. and, um, and, and, and um, I can't think of the right word, um, overpowering. Yeah, they're powerful. Powerful. Well, you see, okay, so we think of angels and I think of little cherubs. I think of all the Christmas angels and you see a cute little chubby angel uh-huh. that looks like a child with wings. And that's it. Now, angels in the Bible are so much more than that. Um, they, they're beautiful like that, um, but you see them as being extensions of the will of the Lord, like operating on, under the will of the Lord and um, as being residents of heaven in the presence of the Lord. They are in Revelation. We see them before the presence of the Lord day and night, beholding the holiness of the Lord. They are holy like he is holy and then you see their power and their majesty would cause some to fall down and worship and that's what's incredible is they are not even the Lord they are not even as majestic and as holy as the Lord is it's almost like they're the moon reflecting his holiness and his majesty and he is the sun but even so they're startling they're huge you get the sense of size that they're huge that they're powerful that they're holy, um, and those three aspects, that especially that majesty and holiness, is what causes people to fall down on their faces in fear. It's the holiness, I think, in particular, that's, um, you see that in whenever there's a theophany, which is a re- revealing of the Lord, an appearance of the Lord, um, people fall down and worship and say, you know, like Isaiah, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I think that's where that fear comes into play. I'm I'm small and weak. I'm also sinful. And it's scary to be in the presence of all of that holiness and righteousness um, and the beauty that comes from that and the power that comes from that. That, So, yeah, you're right. He's saying. He's terrified. It's awesome. It's an awesome, in the the real sense of that word, experience. Um, So in the midst of, he receives this vision, and what's great is that Peter is simultaneously receiving vision. This whole passage, well, let me say that in a minute, but first of all, a a couple notes about clean versus unclean. I'm going to touch on these next three points very quickly. Clean versus unclean, ceremonial purity, and its effect on relationships, and Peter's messages. Well, first of all, um, (coughs) as you were saying earlier, Trudy, that this completely characterized... um, every one of their relationships as Jewish um, followers of the Lord, that their their relationships with other people was so specifically uh, um, bound by it. When I worked at the Jewish preschool in Northampton, Massachusetts, I noticed um, one of the things that was amazing was um, as a Gentile working there, anybody working, anybody who brought their lunch in for, um, we were never allowed to bring in any meat for our lunch because remember so many of the rules um, surrounding kosher eating. Kosher eating is the clean versus unclean that's talked about in Leviticus. I mean kosher eating is very specific, a very specific way of dealing with the meat and our regular butchers are not kosher because of the blood that's left in our red meat or any of our meat. But the kosher way of doing it would be to allow the blood of the animal to spill out on the ground completely because the Lord says in the Old Testament not to eat the lifeblood of the animal and then um, also, there's this idea about mixing. You can't mix the dairy. You know, a cheeseburger is anathema. Never mind a bacon cheeseburger because pork is off the, off the menu. So, <laughs> bacon cheeseburger. Whenever I have a bacon cheeseburger, I'm like, I'm so not kosher right now. 
Um, but there's something about mixing the dairy and the meat that's very wrong. So Lord, you have to be, you can't do it. Um, so in this preschool, I had to always, we had to always eat vegetarian. We couldn't bring in any meat from our home into the building because the building was the same building for the school as for the synagogue. So it was just, we were very, it was very specific. The rules were very specific. And you could see how, um, you see it even with someone who's vegetarian or vegan and they go over and try to eat with someone else. And there's this little whole dance about, well, what can you eat? What can't you eat? How can I give you something that you can eat even though I have this whole range of things that I can eat, but you have a different range of things that you can eat. And being able to sit down at the same table together and share food, share a meal, um, is going to be very difficult. But think about the Lord's Supper and how the Lord's Supper is this meal shared among Christians um, where we all sit down, we all eat. There's this idea of um, hospitality, even just in that, that God feeds us from his own self, his own being. Um, that spiritual nurturing is mirrored by a very physical hospitality that's present among the people of God. We do this even as church. Um, some of our best times together are spent in sharing meals, in um, sharing, sharing food together has a very special thing about it. And that's one of the things I think we don't do. We don't, it's very hard for us to do as a church on a big scale, but we do do it in private homes. And one of the things about the church is that the barriers, the social barriers, are actually broken down. Um, even in our church that has kind of, is a different sh- social strat, you know, sphere than many other churches I've been in, um, even in our church, those social spheres are crossed. Social barriers are crossed. You find yourself sitting next to someone from a very different um, way of life um, than yourself every Sunday. And that's a beautiful thing. That's how the body of Christ should be. Think about that on Thursday mornings when we have our outreach service. And I actually think about it in terms of clean and unclean because I'm a little bit of a germ foe. And so my own germ phobia, I see this also as a very visceral reminder of how it must have been for the Jews. For them, it was spiritual. They, for hundreds of years, the Lord had been hammering this home to them what purity looks like and how to keep themselves ritually pure um, and what that meant physically. And it had, um, at first, they didn't really follow it or care. And then after hundreds of years, you can imagine these habits get ingrained and then it becomes so visceral. Have you ever had this visceral shudder when you're around something that you're like, I just can't do that. I cannot eat that food. You know, whether it's sweetbreads or some kind of animal. Yeah, exactly. I know. Liver. Or um, there are some things that just make you go, woo. <laughs> and, um, and even with, I'm a little bit of a germ phobe. And so I think about that in the hospital. I'm, you know, very conscientious about washing my hands or using <coughs> hand sanitizer. I think about it honestly in our Thursday morning service where there are some people who are homeless. Um, some people come in and worship who are homeless, but some, not all are homeless. A lot are just of a different, you know, mm-hmm. income. They're lower income. They're glad for an extra meal or they're just glad for worship. You know, th- there are people of all different kinds coming in and some have not bathed. And I'm very aware that some have not bathed. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guarantee you I'm shaking hands. But I do it on Sunday mornings, too. I shake hands, shake a lot of hands, and then I'm going to go and wash my hands immediately <laughs> afterwards. I remember, wash your hands immediately afterwards. But that visceral aspect, what is it that you think, ugh? Or have you ever seen the food that someone else was eating and you thought, how can they eat that? 
There, this is what is happening. This is what the Lord is going to overcome for Peter. Um, then the fir- when the sheep first falls down in front of him in the vision, he says, forbid it, Lord. Ah, no, I'm not. No way. I won't ever do that. Um, and the Lord overcomes that visceral um, objection. And, and what this is doing is it's opening the way for relationship breaking down these barriers of ethnicity and different kinds of eating and different understanding about um, physical cleanliness and its spiritual ramifications. The Lord is breaking it down in order to make one body, one body in Christ. Um, Okay, so any thoughts about that before I go to look at Peter's message? But you're right, Trudy, what you were saying before. It's huge. This is a completely new era. And it's a new era within salvation history. No longer are those rules in effect. No longer is there a prerequisite um, for being in relationship with God, whether it's physical, whether it's moral, whether it's um, ethnic, whether it's none of it. Um, All are welcome to come and receive the salvation that he offers in Jesus. Okay, Peter's message. In Peter's sermon, this time, one of the things that we've noticed about Peter's sermons is that he quotes a lot of scripture, doesn't he? He quotes a lot of Old Testament scripture. Well, in this particular message, he doesn't. Maybe because that's not going to be helpful in his argument for these Gentiles. He's, it's so interesting to see him tailoring his message. And as with all the other messages, um, it's, when we read it, it was only, only took about a minute and a half to read it. Surely he preached for longer than that. I have a feeling he preached for longer than that. But we get the summary of it, and in his summary, um, he has two messages. Well, he, he doesn't use scripture, and he does talk about um, Jesus' earthly ministry. It's the only, only time in Acts we see discussion of Jesus' earthly ministry, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Um, But the main aspects of his message, the two most important things theologically that he's underscoring, is um, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. You see that at the very beginning in verse 36. And then at the very end, that forgiveness of sins is available um, to everyone who believes in him. And that's in verse 43. Those two ideas, first of all, that Jesus is Lord, that was one of the first creedal statements of the early church. Um, Before they had the Apostles' Creed, which was er way earlier than the Nicene Creed, um, one of the earliest ways to identify a Christian, especially in a setting where um, to identify yourself as a Christian would involve persecution, potentially. You didn't want to just tell everyone, but you wanted to make sure, or maybe you did, um, at the right time and as the Lord led, but there would be a way of um, understanding Oh, that person's a Christian. And um, I'm sure you've had a moment where you realize, oh, that person's a Christian. I think here everyone's Christian in the South. It feels like it. It feels like that's what people understand. And yet, have you ever seen into someone's life and seen, you know, whether it's a good friend and you end up realizing, oh, you see, somehow she wants you to see something upstairs and you see her Bible open, you know, when she didn't think anyone was looking. Or you see something that makes you say, Oh, she really believes in the Lord. Well, knowing each other as Christians, one of the ways that early Christians were able to identify each other was if they could say, Jesus is Lord. Because you couldn't 
say Jesus is Lord without believing that Jesus is um, more than just a man, more than just a Messiah who died, more than just, um, but someone, really someone who died and was raised from the dead. So it's a statement about Jesus' identity, about Jesus being both the Son of Man and the Son of God. Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So there's that first statement about belief in Jesus, um, identifying who Jesus is, and then what, what Jesus brings. Through faith in the name of Jesus, everyone can receive forgiveness of sins. Um, and so this message about forgiveness is all throughout Scripture, it's all throughout, you see it in Acts, it's kind of the bottom line. Because the next, the next invitation, as Peter and Paul are preaching throughout the book of Acts, it, and Stephen, when he preached, is repent and believe in him. Forgiveness is available. Come. Come and believe in him. And forgiveness is available to us when we first come to Jesus, when we're first converted to him, whether that was a very drastic conversion or a mild um, series of small conversions. But forgiveness, that's the good news for us as Christians, is that forgiveness is continually available for us as Christians as well. The good news um, is not just for us when we first believe, but the good news is for us all throughout our Christian walk and our Christian life. Um, So upon hearing this message, um, in the middle of his sermon, actually, um, the sermon is interrupted by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting in verse 44? Um, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And so those who heard the word clearly believed. And it's almost as though um, in past circumstances the Holy Spirit has fallen upon believers after they've been baptized with water. But here it's almost as though it was needed. (coughs) The Holy Spirit knew to come sooner so that these Jews would understand that those Gentiles who heard it really believed. The whole following of the Holy Spirit upon them is a sign for the Jewish Christians so that they would say, you're like us. We have the Holy Spirit too. We believe in Jesus too. We are one body in Christ. And they're amazed. And that's what happens. They're amazed because they heard them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared in verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? No, we're going to baptize them. They're Christians. Clearly God has included them in his promises. And not only that, but he has sent forth his spirit. They are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They are one with us in the body of Christ. Good news. Um, One of the great things about this, and my last seven minutes, I'm going to take us through these last three points. What it, one of the things on a big picture scale that I really think is happening here, one of the ways in which this barrier, um, but it's not just a barrier between ethnicities um, or between people of different ways of life. Um, the barrier that's broken down here is even bigger than that because for the Jewish people, any those other people, the Gentiles, had oppressed them. The Ro- this is a Roman official. The Romans were their overlords. The Romans had conquered them. The Romans were their enemies. And I think that's where this word, um, this, where this particular passage of scripture can become a challenge for us today. Who are the Gentiles for us as Christians? 
Well, I don't think, I do think, yes, ethnicity, all are welcome to receive from God, that the promises of God are for all people. There are no prerequisites um, to receiving grace from him. You just come. And so opening that invitation to all. But I think the ones that we might as individuals have the hardest time sitting next to in church or um, wanting uh, them to receive from God, the hardest people for us to pray for are our enemies, aren't they? And I've said this to people, and they say, well, I don't have any enemies. And I say, I'm not talking about rat-a-tat-tat. I'm going to, you know, we're not talking about the um, Montagues and the Capulets here. We're talking about the person who slighted you, um, the very subtle and minor um, wrongs and infractions, those things that seem so petty and yet are so hard to let go of, Um, the person that snubbed you, the person um, that didn't invite you to their party the person that might have said bad things about you that weren't true behind your back, Um, the person that betrayed you, that is the Gentile. Um, That is the person that um, it would be a miracle for us to sit down side by side in the kingdom of God next to. Um, And that is the person that, um, that is the way the Lord breaks down the barrier for Peter um, and for the Jewish Christians. Um, It's that he's um, causing their hearts to be transformed so that they could actually love their enemies and desire those who had wronged them, desire that those who had wronged them would receive good things from the Lord. Um, and that's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, um, that we um, love our enemies. He says um, in Matthew chapter 5, and let me just find it so I can read it aloud to you, but you don't have to find it yourself. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, or you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's a hard word, and it's not something that we do easily, and it's not something we have to do on our own. It's something that God gives us grace to do. And it's a sign really here that God's grace is present in the midst of this newborn baby Christian community that God has, through Jesus Christ, broken down the wall of hostility Um, that previously existed between Jew and Gentile. Wrongs had been committed, and yet in Jesus, um, just as we are as individuals forgiven, um, that is the motivation for forgiving others. Um, It comes from a place of saying, I too have wronged other people, and the Lord has forgiven me. Um, I am not completely without sin. So that even while, yes, what this person might have done is wrong, God has forgiven me, Um, And somehow he will cause the forgiveness that he's given to me and the grace that he's given to me to overflow in my life, that there might be grace to be able to extend to this other person. So it's really, it is, Jesus commands it, and it feels like a commandment, but it's not some, it's such a strong commandment and such a horribly hard thing to do that it's not something we can do on our own. We need grace to be able to forgive our enemies be able to love and pray for our enemies, to be able to sit next to them in church and to want good things for them, to want the Lord to bless them the way we want him to bless us and our friends and our families. Um, and so it's, I think it's no mistake that Luke is highlighting the location of what's going on. Um, Luke says that this happened, that Simon, was in, or Simon Peter was in Joppa. And there's one other mention of Joppa in Scripture. Now I'm getting all. I'm going to geek out on you. I'm going to do a Bible nerd thing on you. And the other, the one other mention of Joppa in Scripture is in the book of Jonah. 
In Jonah chapter 1 verse 3, remember the Lord tells the prophet Jonah to go and preach um, destruction to the people of Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh were the sworn enemies of the people of Israel. And Jonah refuses Remember, and he runs in the opposite direction. Instead of, going, instead of going east to go to Nineveh, what does he do? He goes, wo- he goes up to the ocean to go to Joppa to get on a boat to go west. Because he's saying, I'm not going to go preach repentance because you're going to have mercy on them because you are a merciful and gracious God. There's no way. I don't want you to forgive my enemies. I don't want you to forgive the enemies of Israel. I'm not going to Nineveh. And so he goes in the opposite direction. And even then, when he's swallowed by the whale and then spit back up, finally the Lord physically like almost brings him back. Um, and then he says, oh, well, I'll go. But that's, this is why I didn't want to go, because you're gracious and merciful. He goes and he preaches. And what happens? They repent. And he's miserable. He's so miserable he wants to die. And that's how the book ends. The book of Jonah is open-ended. Jonah is sitting sulking uh, and mad at the Lord, refusing to receive the fact that God has forgiven their sworn enemies. And he's just sitting there. and It's, it's like there's this cloud of misery hanging over his head. And, um, and the, it ends with a question. The Lord ends the book of Jonah with a question. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. You're, you're arguing with me because I'm not destroying them, but I'm having mercy on them because they've repented? And it's because they're the enemies of Israel. So there's this open-endedness with Jonah the prophet. By the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit, Peter is a different Jonah. The conversion is not just Cornelius's conversion, it's a conversion of Peter. That Peter, as, um, as a righteous Jew, in that sense, um, is able to see as an older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, he's willing that the younger son would come and receive from the father. He's willing that these um, enemies of Israel would come and receive through Jesus all of what God has for them, that they would receive salvation. And there are a couple verses from Ephesians that talks about this unity in Christ as both groups, both Gentiles and Jews, receive grace in Jesus and then offer grace to each other, and that this dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. So I'm going to read it, and as I read it, I think probably every one of us might have someone who's wronged us. So as I read it, I just encourage you to think of that person or persons or groups of people. Um, there, there's probably someone who's done you wrong, um, and that this, this could be true for you and them in Christ. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That dividing wall of hostility can be broken down um, only through Jesus Christ. Um, And through Jesus and his death on the cross, in his flesh, his body of flesh, he has... Um, also brought reconciliation for us to God. And it's that vertical reconciliation that um, brings us grace, overflows that grace in us, that there might also be this horizontal extension of grace to those who have wronged us. So let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for including um, including people of all nations in your kingdom um, through faith in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for that. And um, even now, Lord, wherever there are barriers between us and others in our lives, wherever there has been a wrong committed, where there is a wall of hostility, Lord, would you, by the power of your cross, by the blood of your atonement, would you, even as you have redeemed us by grace, would you cause there to be grace extended through us Um, across that dividing wall? Would you break down that dividing wall um, in our hearts, in the hearts of others? Would you bring reconciliation? Um, And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.